Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. For this series, we've asked some of our regular Hay interviewers to choose their own personal Hay moments from our archive. These might be interviews they have done, they have seen, or the interview they wish they had the chance to do. This week, it's the turn of Safraz Mansour. Safraz is a journalist, documentary maker and broadcaster. He is a regular contributor to The Guardian, a presenter of documentaries and a cultural commentator. His first book, Greetings from Berry Park, was published in 2007 and a film, Blinded by the Light, based on the book, was released in 2019. Hello, this is Safraz Manzor and I have been asked to suggest three things from the Hay Player archive that um, I think you guys ought to uh, to check out. Um, the first choice I've got is Harry Belafonte. And this is from 2012. And he was talking about his memoir, which was called My Song. Now, the thing about Harry Belafonte that makes him so fascinating is that when he was talking at Hay, he was 85 years old, but he still was incredibly engaged and involved in the present day. And so when you talk to him, you're talking to somebody who has led a truly extraordinary life. I mean, this is somebody who grew up in Harlem in the 1920s, where he would see the likes of Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald perform at the Apollo and Duke Ellington was a neighbour. He then goes to theatre workshop and his fellow students include Tony Curtis and Marlon Brando. He actually goes on double dates with Marlon Brando and then in the 60s he gets involved in the civil rights movement and he becomes friends with JFK and Martin Luther King. Oh and he also gave Bob Dylan his first studio session. I actually interviewed Harry Belafonte a few days before his appearance at Hay. And it was just extraordinary to just sit and listen to this guy because he is somebody who sort of speaks and connects to a world that's long gone. And you just kind of feel privileged to share the space with him. And that's why I've selected his appearance at Hay as my first choice. The Second World War was the turning point for so so many in the world. And certainly no culture, no society knows that better than the people here in England. But I was 17 years old and I had a rocky journey through the, my early adolescence and my formative years. I suffered from a disorder called dyslexia. Nobody quite knew what that meant back then. They just knew that I appeared to be a young person that had a level of intelligence that was attractive yet unfulfilled. I seem to have been most disruptive in the classroom, uh, deficit attention, and I drifted and couldn't stay focused. And uh, rather than un- understanding that this was part of a, a circuitry in my brain that uh, had gone awry from my birth, uh, they saw it as a reason to punish. I just wasn't studying and I wasn't doing my work. And the cruelty of the process of learning in school became difficult for me to endure and I left long before I got I didn't even get through high school and in that space of nothingness I decided to enlist in the armed forces of the United States and became a member during the Second World War of the United States Navy 
and my task as a seaman was to be a munitions loader. Our armed forces was racially segregated. Black troops could not mix with white troops, although we came from the same nation and fought the same enemy. There was this severe division. And what was most cruel about that fact was that most of the most difficult tasks in the war were relegated to the blacks. We were the cooks, we were the chambermaids, we were the ones who cleaned up the messiest parts of the carnage. And we endured that. But when I came out from that war, we had expectations because the war, we were told, was for democracy. It was to make the world safe for freedom. And we believed that, many of us. Uh, and after all, the standard bearers of that thought, that philosophy with the British and the French and the Dutch, uh, just to name a few. And here we were, conscripted by these nations and these cultures to do the work of the war. Britain had large expeditionary forces that came from Africa and other parts of the world and in the Caribbean. And here my friends were in the RAF who were pilots from the Caribbean, from the island of Jamaica. And others fought uh, alongside the British soldiers and the campaigns. In black America, we fought in the Pacific and in Europe and Africa. And so did a lot of the troops from Asia and from Africa on the, part, on the side of the French. And in hearing of democracy and freedom, and that there shall be no further uh, uh, preoccupation with the idea of a superior race. We thought the mission was noble and participated in it to fulfill that nobility. At the end of the war, there was no generosity from those who conscripted our services and put us to the task. I came back to America and I still couldn't vote. I came back to America and I could not pick a place of choice to study, to work, or to find any relief for the things that plagued me. And I discovered that a lot of the people I came to know in Africa were having the same experience. When they returned to the colonies that they represented, they too were subject to even more severe suffocation as a minority race. And certainly the people all throughout Asia and Southeast Asia had the same experience with the French and the Dutch. So here was a globe of masses of people of color in a state of great discontent because they had been promised something that was not fulfilled. And our choice was to acquiesce to these conditions or to feed upon what we had been so early on tutored to do, and that was to rebel against these conditions that we found inhumane. So the choice was to go between submitting and become servants or to rebel and become full-fledged human beings. And most of us in the world opted for the latter. As a consequence, everywhere you went in the world, people of color were in some stage of great rebellion. The people in Southeast Asia rebelled against the French and the Dutch and the suffocations they felt as inferior citizens. The people in Africa felt exactly the same. So did we in America and 
parts of the Caribbean. So in this climate, when I returned, I have found that I qualified for nothing. I had no skill, I had no education, and so I became a janitor's assistant. I did minor repair work. I was, I was very good at scrubbing the halls or hauling the garbage. No one did it better than I. And uh, one day, I did a repair in an apartment, and I was given a gratuity for my services, and it was to go to see a play. Now, I'd been to the music halls, and I'd seen what the great musical artists of the day had achieved, because I loved hanging out there. It was my pastime to listen to Duke Ellington and Ella Fitzgerald and Count Basie and all the rest. Uh, but I'd never seen a play. And I went to this place called the American Negro Theater, and I walked in. It was a very tiny place. It was at the basement of a library, as a matter of fact, and had about 50 people in the audience, and that was a sellout. Uh, and when I got in, almost all the audience was black, and I was struck by the silence, because it was my experience, except in church, and even there, not for too long, <laughs> if you get more than three black people <laughs> congregating, not there's going to be some kind of noise, <laughs> and eventually, you know, great eruptions of emotion. But in this place, there was something terribly reverential, so I anticipated that I was going to have an experience and therefore just follow the mood of the crowd. And I waited a few minutes and then the curtain opened and the lights went up and the actors walked on stage. And I can best describe it as my first real epiphany. What happened uh, bathed me in a way that uh, my soul and my attention and my imagination, like nothing else, grabbed me to see these people on a stage using the words of a poet to spin magic, to make you laugh in one moment and to make you excited in the next and to lead you towards a point of view and to convince you at the end of the play that what you had seen was worth the time invested. I loved the environment and I wanted very much to become part of it. I did not know specifically to do what, except to be in it, to be a part of this life and this passion. And so I begged my way in to be a cleanup man. I would fix the chairs in the auditorium or clean or sweep or do some minor repairs as I watched and learned what the actors and the directors and the playwrights were doing. And then one day, in the desperation to find an actor to play a part, a tiny part, uh, they couldn't find anyone quickly and they asked me if I would could be pressed into service. And I decided I'd become a team player and uh, do this, although I didn't feel I had any qualifications. The play turned out to be uh, a play written by an Irish playwright by the name of Sean O'Casey. And the play was called Juno and the Paycock. And uh, uh, we had translated it into uh, this black moment, it's an all black cast. And we did it fairly easily because the contents of the play, the Irish rebellion against the British and the way Sean O'Casey wrote in his radical style, we could identify with very easily. And if you were familiar with a Jamaican accent, it wasn't too far from the Irish brogue. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, we delighted skipping through the verses and the passages of the play in our West Indian accent. And the critics delighted in the play. 
The third night of that play in walked Paul Robeson. And Paul, well, we were stunned that he came. And at the end of the play was when he sat with us and made the remarks I just alluded to. How wonderful it was to be chosen to become artists, gatekeepers of the truth. And uh, uh, the purpose of art is to show life as it is and not as it should be. And welcome to the world that he was a master of. And from that time on until his death, I not only saw in him all the examples of what I wanted my life to be, but he befriended me and took me into his confidence. I became very politicized and very caught up in the ways of the world, its glory as well as, as, well as its mischief. And in that context, uh, I knew that I was in a very limited place. So I had to go to a greater expanse of study for this world of theater that so excited me. So I went to a place called the New School of Social Research with a director who had escaped the Nazis. He was a German by the name of Erwin Piscotta. He'd come from the Max Reinhardt Theater, which back in the early 20s, late 20s and early 30s, was the mecca of theater for Europe. Uh, it was a very experimental time, epic theater. And uh, the, the group of artists that made up that theater were the most impacting on European culture. Bertolt Brecht was one of the writers, and, and Piscotta was one of the directors. And he escaped the Nazis, came to America, opened up the school. And I sought to have entrance. Uh, my first real piece of acting came when I found out that you couldn't get into the school unless you had a high school degree. And I had none such. And I had this dilemma. I desperately wanted to be here in that place. And I petitioned to meet with representatives of the school to plead a case. And then my first real challenge as an actor came. And I did it brilliantly. <laughs> I had my interrogators in tears, feeling sorrow for this lonely, desperate black boy. And before I knew it, I was in the class. And uh, the reward for that was the fact that in my first day or so looking around the classroom, I found out that my classmates were people like a guy named Marlon Brando, Another guy named Walter Matthau, one called Rod Steiger, another called uh, 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 Tony Curtis, a woman named B. Arthur. And I looked at all these strange people and strange types. None of us looked like we would make it. <laughs> and on occasion, we notified one another that we thought so. <laughs> but what a, what a miracle that all those young men turned out to have such an impact on their time. In this context, uh, what Piscotta had done and Bertolt Brecht and that kind of theater, it was deeply rooted in social information. And it was in that theater that I set the goal for what I would do, and not only the plays that I would sought to, to, uh, to be in, but how I would use my life as an artist. One day we did a play written by an American playwright by the name of John Steinbeck, a great writer, one of the great framers of the great renaissance of the 1930s, which was America's own 
greatest moment of glory in the arts, really. During that Great Depression, everyone was subsidized. We produced our greatest painters, our greatest poets, our greatest dancers, our greatest directors, etc., etc. And uh, we were doing this play. And the director had created a character called the balladeer. And the balladeer was to sing uh, in between sets and to set a mood by using the songs of the day to, uh, to help in the transition of each moment in the play. And I learned these songs as an actor and approached it, studying subtext and all that, being directed carefully by the director. And uh, uh, that was my first approach to singing. Uh, I'm often asked when I'm interviewed, uh, what do you consider yourself, an actor or a singer? And I always kind of arrogantly respond and say, I consider myself an actor. I consider myself one of the world's greatest actors. And the interviewer would always respond with that great presence of humility and say, that's a little, you reach a little bit with that remark, don't you? And I said, well, yes, but I don't do so falsely. <laughs> and on what basis do you make that observation? I said, the fact that I've considered so many people, I've, I've uh, convinced so many people in the world that I'm a singer, that only a, <laughs> only a great actor could have done that. Now onto my second choice, and this is one um, where I was actually involved in terms of uh, it was uh, it was me doing the conversation. Now, when you do events at Hay, it's it's often a, a thrill. It's it's very often a thrill. Sometimes it can also be a bit intimidating, and it could be intimidating because the room's really big. It could be intimidating because the person you're talking to is you know, somebody who is incredibly intelligent and you're wondering whether you'll be able to sort of, you know, uh, go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. Um, I was very intimidated when I was asked to interview Charlotte Rampling, and this was in 2017. I'd read interviews with her and I'd heard that she was quite a... She could be quite chilly um, in terms of conversation. And so I did all my research and I did everything I could... And it was still a little bit intimidating when I met her, but she sort of, she seemed quite shy in some ways as well. Uh, but we got on really well in the green room and she was promoting a book called Who I Am. Now, the tricky thing about the book was that it was very, very slender and it was mostly made of photographs. And then there were a few sort of non-linear memories and reminiscences and comments, but it wasn't a memoir in a strict sense of the word. It was very much more impressionistic than that. And uh, so there wasn't really that much to go on. It was also getting slightly more worrying because I was trying to come up with questions and things. And we were walking towards the stage and I had about sort of 18 or 19 questions, which I thought was going to do, well, would be fine for the hour. And then as I was walking along, she just says to me, I, I just want to let you know that I don't really want to be asked any questions about anything that happened to me after I was 21. And this obviously meant that I couldn't really ask her anything about any film that she had made. So I start asking these questions and her answers are quite short, as you'll see. And I'm racing through the list 
and I get to a point where I'm about sort of 14 questions in and I looked at the clock and I was only about 10 minutes in to the interview and inside I'm thinking where am I going to go with this how am I going to ask enough questions only about the first 20 years when the book is so slim and she doesn't want to talk about anything to do with her movies which is where the audience you know had probably come to hear something from so What's quite interesting about this conversation is that there is a sort of tension in the air. It's a little bit of a frosty exchange, but in a way that makes it kind of more interesting and more memorable. Because when you talk to somebody who, you know, whose work you absolutely love and who's really being very generous, those go really well. But sometimes the slightly more interesting encounters are the ones which are slightly more tinged with a bit of tension. And uh, so that's why I've chosen this which is Charlotte Rampling uh, in conversation with me from 2017. When I get to 20, I'm not going to write anymore. That is to say, when I get to, when all before 20, all my life and all my thoughts and all that happened to me before 20, I could put in, but after 20, I didn't want to write any, well, about 20. Yeah, it was 20, and there was a reason why it was 20, but I'm not going to tell you that because you've got to read the book and you've got to find out why. But um, there was a reason, obviously. There was, there's always a reason for these things. But no, it, it was an experimentation. It really was an experimentation. It was like, it was like, um, it was like being able to say one day find a way to describe, uh, uh, let's say, my experience at Hay. But it wasn't about that. But say coming here suddenly. It was actually very moving coming here through the English English countryside. It was it, there was extraordinary things that were happening in my head, in my body, in the way I was feeling. It was all actually emerging something, I don't know, in terms of memory, in terms of, or I've never been to Hay, that was not the problem. But just explaining why and how these things can happen. And, and in, in a very organic way, I would, I would then have been able to write about that. And that would have been a little piece like that, say. And that's what I was doing on so many different things. That's how I was learning to write. And then I would come back with Christophe, we'd discuss it, we'd play around with it, and we'd do it. And it, this was all in French, because the original was in French. <clears throat> Did you write lots and lots and lots and then shave it down and prune it down and get it down to, you know, what it is? Or is this, is this, was it, this is basically the length that you wrote? Well, I'd, I actually wanted to write a book <clears throat> um, that was one sentence. And I thought that was very clever, and it's a very intellectual game, which actually is sort of clever, and I'm sure other people have done it. But it's like to be able to... I mean, maybe that one sentence would have started the story, because a lot of authors say that when they have that yeah. first sentence, which has taken an awful long time to actually get to be able to know what that sentence will be, but you, but you somehow... It somehow emerges from you one day. Uh, so all my writings have to come down to a very, 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 very minimalistic... The plus... The, the plus the most minimalistic um, framework. Because if there's one word too many, then it doesn't work for me. So you sound like you were very hard on yourself in terms of trying to shape it and, sh and compress it down like that. Yes, but I had a dad who was very hard on himself, and so I had lots and lots of things to learn from him. <laughs> um, God, the anecdotes you must be able to tell. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> Actually, picking up on your, uh, on your dad, you write very vividly about your parents. Um, and one of the things that really struck me, I was just mentioning this before, is that so your dad lost his dad when he was six? Uh, yes, six. six. Um, 
And then he went to, he was sent to boarding school at the age of... Well, then he was, he went, actually, he was, he had a rather difficult situation. I will just tell you this. this is, yes, it's in the book, so I can. Thank you. Um, he, um, his mother, lo losing the father, uh, remarried, uh, quite a sort of nice gentleman, but he couldn't take on three children. So my father was given away to his grand, uh, to the grandmother, to his grandmother, a rather Victorian, severe woman, who then put him into boarding school. And then, then he went into military school. So he was always at school somewhere away from, which was why, you know, he knew how to survive. But I was just saying, it just seems like such a, quite a, quite a colder time to be able to sort of send a seven-year-old kid to, to boarding school, doesn't ah, it? but you're born in another year, my friend. <laughs> it was hard then. It was. I mean, I'm, didn't, I, because I, I was in the 60s, so it was all starting to be much less hard. But before that, you know, it was quite, quite tough. And especially in England, you know, kids went to boarding school very young. <clears throat> and the impact of that must kind of ripple right through to adulthood, mustn't it? In terms of the personality that must get shaped by those kind of events, I guess. No, but that's not a bad thing, is it? Why would that be a bad thing? Or are you just saying this as a comment? No, I mean, just in terms of if you're... It's a comment, but it's a... Yeah, it's it, could a be a it, it could be a trigger for a question as well. Yes. Um, no, just if you're... Uh, if you're sent away that way, then does that make you more emotionally cold? Does it make you more distancing in that kind of way? It makes you, it makes you more resilient, but it certainly uh, gives you less potential to, I think, to, to have a very loving life. And my father said it when he was actually quite old. He said, I don't know how to love. I don't know how to love your mum. But he did learn to love my mum in the end because she was very, got very, very, very ill. And he looked after her for years and years and was actually able in the end to feel that he had that. Because, yeah, it boxes you into a form of armour. You've got to, as a little kid, you can't really sort of expect you're going to have nice, warm, loving relationships. But you have other things that come in that, right, that compensate from time. It's not always. And your, your mum was quite different. And did she, am I right to say she started writing a diary at the age of... 15 or something, was that right? Uh, yeah, even younger, actually, age right. of 12, I think, yeah. yeah. Um, did, did your dad know about that? Well, did her dad no, know no, about did, that? No, did your dad know that his wife was right? Oh, yes, yeah, 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 he did, but he, but he threw them all away. Yeah, mm. well, that was his choice of handling the situation. Because <clears throat> you mentioned that in the book, that's not, this is not... I think we're allowed to talk no, about No, but I got them back, yeah, but he did throw them away. But, and but, I mean, so was it that the moment he found out about them, then he just thought, right, I'm going to chuck all this? Or it wasn't that he was knowing about them for a long time and then he eventually got no, to No, 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 not at all, not at all. But he knew that he, my mother had a lot of... A lot of they're all in boxes in the attic, and he knew that my mother had a lot of, of her old stuff. It was very... I only found out myself when I recuperated them from the, from the bin bags. But, um, but he couldn't cope with it. So yeah. saying, you know, how these, how these rather... Uh, ferociously lonely childhoods that you know a lot of lot of boys had at that state at those in, the, in that era could end up with not absolutely being able to handle anything that was to do with something very emotional. You just you just could not handle it because it's you don't know what to do with it. And so he just threw everything away. And when I asked him why, he he couldn't even tell me why. He just said he just screamed. I threw it, I threw it all away. That was all he could do. I found that really painful to kind of read that. It's quite a very powerful and emotional scene, isn't it? I mean, if you think about 
trying to, as, a, as an act of empathy to try and imagine the kind of person who, for whom that would be a, a thing that they would do and the journey they must have gone on to, mm. be, to be that kind of person. Mm. Um, but you don't sound like you're angry with him. You sound quite forgiving about the fact that that was, that was the person he was. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But, I mean, you forgive all along the way, don't you? Hopefully. Hopefully. Um, I do, yeah. And especially writing is very much about forgiveness in, in, in this sort of way because you really go into what you're saying, what actually does it mean to do that rather than just have the, have the act or the anecdote sort of uh, given to you, the story given to you. But then you say, well, what was it actually like to be inside that moment, inside that story, and to actually do that? What, 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 a, what, a, what a raging, raging despair somehow in there. Because one of the things that I've, um, in, 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 the, in my more modest years, that I've, the, the bit of wisdom that I think I've picked up is this idea that parents siblings, whatever, they think they're doing the right thing, even if you might not think they are. So from their worldview, that was the right thing to do. It's just it might seem a bit incomprehensible to somebody else. It's not so much what... Are you talking about the same incident? Yeah, yeah, just that it's, idea. It's, no, it, it's, it's about what they, it was about what he had to do. He couldn't. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a reasoned action. It was a totally... It was a, an emotional scream. He couldn't do anything but do that, although I told him and asked him. I said, Dad, please don't... You know, if you find things from mum, please, I'll come and collect them and take them away, but please, could I have them? So he, it was just, he couldn't do anything but that. Mm. So when somebody is in such a state of, of, of out of control in terms of, of what their emotional world is, is screaming at them from inside, and you can only just do something mad, then, you know, then, yes, of course you, of course, you maybe not understand, but you forgive, because... There's such pain in there. Um, and he was in the army, wasn't he? But was, did, was he an athlete before he was in the army? Is that how he... He, while he was in the army, right. he was While he was in the army, yeah. OK, because he won a gold in 1936, is that right? Yes. Um, in, was that Munich? No, he won in Berlin, Berlin. in 1936. Berlin. Hitler's Berlin, yeah. Um, and so then, he, so then you're stationed in all sorts of different places and you move around, I think, seven times in 13 years. Um, did that make it sort of feel like there's not much point in trying to become, befriend too many people or get too close to anybody because you might have to sort of take off the next day? No, I think it's the, actually probably works the other way around. I didn't necessarily think of that then, but I certainly thought of it when I was writing about it. It's actually you, 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 you know that your time is limited, and so you, in a sense, you really, you, you really, you certainly don't do it consciously, but you certainly make probably as, as deep a tie as you can with the people while you have them. Oh, so you sort of like you're aware that there's a clock tick ticking clock. Well, it so could kind be, of but I, I, I sort of have that way. feeling in, but way in retrospect, when I was, you know, when I became adult, I have I have that feeling. I have that feeling that it's, it's like, I don't know, it's just yeah. I think also when you're writing, you know, you 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 decide very much to to join your unconscious world, to join the world that you know that 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 doesn't have necessarily a voice, but has all different ways of signalling so many things to you. And you start to listen to it, and you start to listen through your dreams and through your premonitions and through your... Just the way, just the way in your silence you hear things and feel things and you're sometimes guided towards things and, and, and things are written for you. I mean, writers say that so often, suddenly their characters will start to emerge and write themselves. You know, it's not, it's not even them. It's not the, it's not the author that's that's guiding them anymore, it's the, it's the characters that guide them, or the ideas that guide them, you're actually given all this. 
And I think that's something that always intrigued me in, in when I re read books. And I used to love reading books, especially when I was sort of between, between 15 and 21. I, I remember so well the books I read and, and being... And being and knowing that those stories that they were that they were telling were something so deeply embedded inside a form of unknowing, and they brought it into the knowing. That that sense. So that I've always loved. The final choice, my third choice, uh, I was asked to think of somebody who I would really like to have interviewed, and um, and I was thinking, you know, there are so many people, obviously, on the archive that one could imagine that would have been amazing to talk to politicians obviously authors, scientists, thinkers. But often with me, the people I most like to talk to are people who meant a lot to me when I was younger. You know, people who had some huge inf sort of for foundational memories for me. Um, and, and I was thinking about when I was a kid and one of my absolute favourite programmes growing up was Columbo. And uh, I just used to love Columbo and in fact I still do I've, I've got the 10 uh, DVD box set and I've introduced my daughter to, to Columbo and in 2007 Peter Falk came to Hay and uh, he came to talk about his memoir and I was there and I remember just wanting to try and see if I could say hello to him in the green room or something because you know this was somebody who's just he's just gave me a lot of happiness you know, and especially when you're a kid, some the people who make you happy when you're young, your childhood heroes or the people you watched or the music you listen to, they just has a, such a, there's a really profound impact. And and the thing about Peter Falk is you got a sense that he was kind of like the person he played, you know, that's the, his accent didn't seem like it was put on. And so I had a lot of expectations and hope about the session. And I was there, I remember being in the room uh, when... Uh, Peter Falk was talking and the amount of affection and warmth and love that he that the audience had for him was just it was really really special and a lot of people they didn't really even ask questions you know sometimes you'd have people you know hey where people will ask very long convoluted questions which are which are really more like sermons but with but with this people basically just standing up to say we love you and uh, it was just a really warm, pleasant, happy hour. The only thing that made it slightly sad was that Peter Falk himself, you know, he was a little bit forgetful. And there were moments where you just wondered whether he was completely, you know, with it. And in a way, it was a sort of a precursor to the sad truth that actually he was in the early stages of dementia. And, um, you know, and there were some sort of clues to that. But regardless of that, just to be in the room with Peter Falk talking about Columbo was just one of the most absolute glorious moments. And I, I would have done anything to have had a chance to talk to him myself and ask him questions or to be honest just to thank him for the years of happiness that his work has given us you 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 write in in the book which is called just one more thing that your acting interest started at college but it was when in 56 you took part in the iceman cometh with jason robards in an off-Broadway production. Right. Uh, well, but that, by that, by, uh, that off-Broadway production, I had already decided to be an actor. Mm. I already had that uh, important conversation with my father 
where uh, he said, you're going to make an ass of yourself. Um, so uh, what did you say? What did well, you say? No idea. <laughs> <laughs> Jason Robards, meeting Jason Robards and the Iceman Cometh, which is when you, you really launched. Oh, right. And uh, let's see, Jason told me a funny story, and I think it's in the book. What the hell is that story that he told me? He told me a story. Uh, Jesus. Can I look it up? By all means. <laughs> I mean, I can't remember <laughs> half of the things that are in this book. As a matter of fact, I'm lucky if I remember where I live. I can't find my house most of the time. <laughs> I would point out, Peter, Peter flew in from L.A. yesterday and hasn't slept since. So he, he thinks he's still in L.A., largely, yes. and it's got cold suddenly. Now, uh, what am I looking up? I forgot already. Jason Robards told you a story. Oh, yeah, yeah, he told me. God, I hope he, it's he, worth it. Yes, yes. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> Lucky strike won't happen again. Very good. Very good. And what I had and you didn't. A little lily in my life. Slicing knick-knack paddywhack while we do this. Oh, knick-knack paddywhack. Throw the dog a bone. This old man is going home. That was Columbus' theme song. I don't know why. Uh, I gathered... All right, I'm not going to find this. So let's go on to something. Would you stop insisting that I look in this book? <laughs> so sorry, it's a dreadful idea of mine. Oh, here's a, oh, here's a good chapter. Uh, it's uh, on being an actor with one eye. And that story has to do with I, got, I, I had a part on a television show and uh, a scout from Columbia Pictures saw it and said, this kid, he could be another John Garfield, and we'll uh, uh, sign him to a, a contract. And uh, the head of uh, Columbia Pictures was Harry Cohn, and uh, he had to approve everything. Uh, I mean, even if you, uh, if you, if you bought a ball, a, a ball of string, Harry Cohn had to approve it. So he came to New York, and I was supposed to meet him so he could approve whether or not... Okay. So then, uh, at one point in, in, the, in the office, he said to me, I'm concerned about your deficiency. <laughs> I said, what deficiency? What is he said, you know. I said, no, what are you talking about, a deficiency? He says, you know... And he was trying to be polite, and, and he was trying to be sensitive, but I honestly didn't know I, I, a deficiency. When I hear deficiency, I think of vitamins. <laughs> I, I've said, but I don't have a vitamin deficiency. <laughs> and if I did, how would he know? <laughs> So uh, finally, uh, 
uh, he spit it out and he said, you, your eye, you only got one eye, you, you got a glass eye. I said, oh, I, I was relieved. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I lived all my life with one eye. I never considered it a deficiency. Uh, but uh, then he said something. He said, so you're going to have to take a screen test now. Oh, I didn't want to do that. I said, no, I'm not going to. Because if I, they're going to say, hold your head still and follow this. So one eye is going to be following it. <laughs> <laughs> and the other guy is going here. I said, I'm not going to pass that test. And I didn't. So I, <laughs> so I didn't. We, where were we? Where the, <laughs> oh, oh, I wonder, oh, I know what we were doing. We were trying to find the story that Jason Robards. Yeah, we're way over that. It wasn't worth it. There's that. You, come, you found a good chapter on being an actor with one eye. Oh, oh right. But what was the story Jason Robards did? Uh... Oh, oh, I remember now. I remember now. This, uh, this uh, uh, executive in New York, uh, probably in advertising business, he was a drinker. He used to drink a lot. And this night, uh, they had a party in the office. He was drunk. And he says he's going home. He lived in Connecticut. And everybody in the office said, Jesus, don't drive. Jim, don't drive. And he said, no, I'm fine. He got in the car, and he's waving back and forth. And uh, the cop stopped him and told him, get out of the car. And he got out. And at that moment, going south on the opposite side in the highway, there was a, cra a car crash. So the cop said, you stay here. I'm going to see what's going on there. And he went to go about the crash. And the guy, the... Uh, executive who uh, he said I'm getting the hell out of here so, and he drove home and he told his wife if anybody comes to see me tell him I'm sick in bed and the doctor said I can't talk to anybody so the next morning knock 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 the cops two cops the wife opens the door and they say we want to talk to your husband and she said, he's very sick. The doctor said he shouldn't see anybody. And the cop said, come, come with us. And she went. And they went toward the, the garage. And the doors were open. And the cops stopped. Inside the garage was a black and white. <laughs> And what that has to do with Jason Robards is that he, he told me that story. <laughs> Oscar ceremonies. You were nominated one year along with Peter Ustinov. Oh, that was, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was my, can you believe this? My first picture. Prior to that time, I'm work, working off-Broadway. $10 a week rehearsal, 
And when the play opened, $30 a week. And then 20th Century Fox came to New York. They were going to make a picture, Murder Incorporated. They brought the two stars, my Brit, and what's the other guy's name? What difference does it make? All right. <laughs> He's not here. He won't know. <laughs> At any rate, so all right now, I got the part. Oh, yeah, I got the part of a, a hood from real life. His name was Abe Kid Twist Relis. Colorful character, colorful name. And uh, I, I'm going somewhere with this, I don't know. <laughs> at, at, at any rate, oh, and I had an, oh yeah, yeah. I had an, I, I had an overcoat, brown overcoat. And I, the important thing is, if you're gonna play a, a hood, you can't show neck. <laughs> Hoods all have short necks. <laughs> so I got this. <laughs> so I got this overcoat and it concealed my, it concealed my neck so I had a very short neck. Um, Oh, I know what I was going to say. Oh, and I, uh, and I got nominated for an Academy Award, first picture. And uh, I went to the, uh, the, the uh, Academy Award that, the night of the event. And uh, in my category, the guy said, and the winner is Peter. I'm out of my seat. <laughs> And then he says, Ustinov. <laughs> I'm going down now. <laughs> I'm going down now. But here's the thing. My second picture, this was a picture uh, directed by Frank Capra, and it was also a hood. And I didn't tell him anything about the coat. I just said, I got a coat for, for, for this. <laughs> my second picture... I got nominated again. <laughs> so the coat and I, we had a pretty good record together. <laughs> nominated twice, never won nothing. <laughs> uh, oh, and, and it was Jason, oh, I know what it was. I, now, and Jason Robards told me this story about an, uh, an, uh, an account executive who was driving home. He, <laughs> <laughs> Did I say that? The, the, I'd love to hear it. Tell me. <laughs> in the garage there was a parking lot. No, <laughs> no I, kidding. I, I, to, I, I told you that, didn't I? Jesus Christ! <laughs> All right, where where are we? Who, who are you? <laughs> I was hoping you'd tell me, Inspector. Uh, tell me about the money. Here we go. Here's a piece. I just, I, this bit I love. You and your dad. Telling your dad how much you're going to be paid. Other way up. Oh, oh yeah, right. This was, uh, this was my uh, second picture. It was called The Wind Across the Everglades. And... Uh, I told my father, uh, this was a Hollywood picture, so I said, uh, my father always used to say, what's happening? 
what the hell is happening with this acting? I said, I got a job. Yeah? He always, the second question was always the same. How much they pay in you? I told him, he said, ooh, 700 a week or something like that. And I say, I leave this coming uh, Friday and I start to work this following Monday. And he said, you call me the first day on the job. I want to know if they like the work that you're doing for them. And I called him. And he said, so? And I said, I didn't work yet. What? You didn't work? What did you do? You brought food to the other actors? What did you do? I said, we didn't do nothing. They didn't want me yet. And they were paying me $700 a week. My father went around all in my hometown, Austin, New York. He said, this movie business, that is some business. They got the kid down there. He's been down there for seven days. They paid him $3,000. And he did, he said to me, what, what, what do you do if you, if you don't work? I said, I play golf. You play golf? <laughs> and that's what he went around. He says, they pay him uh, all this money to play golf. That's a hell of a business. <laughs> Thanks for listening. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. And you can find over 8,000 more recordings of Hay Festival events over on the Hay Player on our website. Our next guest is Stephanie Merritt, who also writes under the pen name of S.J. Paris.